Scripture reading this morning is from Psalms, chapter 77, verses 11 through 15. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. Your mighty arm, uh, you display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. But this morning, open your Bibles to the book of Esther. Again, if you're a guest with us, we are working our way through the Bible. We're using the book called The Story. It takes the Bible and divides it into 32 chapters. And we are looking at each chapter uh, each week and just kind of making our way through. And we are at the book of Esther. One of the things we like about the book of Esther is, is not just that the story is so good, um, but we also notice that in the book of Esther, uh, and it's, it's very conspicuous, the name of God doesn't appear. And yet we see God's hand throughout. It's such a, a wonderful story. Now, I want us to... Um, uh, do something to, just to begin with to help you remember the book of Esther. This is not original with me, but as I was studying this, I came across this and I thought, this might work. If you ever just wonder who the characters are, who the people are in the story, uh, maybe this will help you. We're going to use playing cards. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you're the one that came up with this. There's a king. His name is Xerxes. If you're filling the blanks, you can put Xerxes out there. He's the king. I put king of clothes because he's quite a drinker. If you read that in the story... Uh, I was trying to figure out which king to put him. I put him as a king of clubs. Secondly, we have a queen. Actually, we have two queens. There's a queen of diamonds, and that's Vashti, the queen of hearts, and that's Esther, because this story really will touch your heart. And then we have a joker. Not because he's funny, but because really the joke's on him, and his hatred for Mordecai and the Jews it just ends up just coming back to, to bite him. His name is Haman. And then finally, the fifth person in the story is Mordecai. We're going to call him the ace. Because an ace, as you know, in, in playing cards, it can be either the smallest card in the deck or it can be the, the largest. It can be uh, even greater than all the face cards. And what we see here, he's the ace in the hole that God uses in a mighty way. Uh, last week in our study, what we learned, what we're reading and just remembering of God's people, 50,000 Jews uh, left Babylon. They, they went back home, and it was quite a homecoming. But this is years later. So there's a different king. It's a different time. King Cyrus is not king anymore. This is King Xerxes. Some have returned to Jerusalem, but some have stayed. And so we know that. There were several waves of return, if you will. And this is Esther's story about some of the Jews who had not yet left to go back to their homeland. The story takes place in Babylon which is now uh, being uh, run or is ruled by Persia. And what we discover here is what's going on with her behind the scenes, well, with Esther behind the scenes. What we're going to see here, even though God's name is not mentioned, we see him in every single chapter. Now again, just to remind you, the main plot is God saving his chosen people. That's what he's doing. We think it's about Esther, but it's not. We might think it about the king, but it's not. It's not about Haman. It's about God saving his people. And what we love is the story of how all of this unfolds. A little bit of history. King Xerxes reigned in Persia from 485 B.C. to 465 B.C. And it was a magnificent reign for him. Now, it wasn't necessarily the best king, 
but his reign, I mean, his, his property, his kingdom went from India all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Tried to conquer Greece, that didn't go so well, but you just get the idea, the scope of his kingdom. But the third year of his reign, he threw a party. And the party was almost as big as his kingdom was. I mean, it was a party. It lasted 180 days. Can you imagine that? That's a six-month party. That is quite a party. And not just that, there was another party on top of that. Now, if you read through there, what you really have are, are three banquets that are going on. There's one banquet, one party that lasts for six months. This is for key military and political leaders. Most of the commentators trying to understand six months, really. But again, the kingdom was so wide that maybe there was a, a rotation of folks coming in. So he didn't want everybody, all of his leaders coming in at one time. And so he kind of spread that out over six months. And then after those six months, you've got this seven-day banquet for those there in the citadel of Susa. And at the same time, Queen Vashti is giving a banquet for the women in the palace. But again, these six months was a time of celebration. It was also a time for the king to show off. It was a way for him to, to reveal to the folks who are working for him how good it is, how good things are going. And so here he is on the last day of the party. We pick up the story. Open your Bibles there. Esther chapter 1, beginning verse 10. Follow along with me. On the seventh day, which is really the 187th day, if you think about it, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, and what you're going to see is that was probably the understatement of the century, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and it lists their names there. I won't read them. Verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. The king, then the king became furious and burned with, angers, with anger. We, we don't know the details here. Uh, we, we get what happened. He asked for her to come. He was obviously inebriated. She refused some say it was just a matter of respect that, that for herself, she did not want to subject herself to a bunch of drunken men. And maybe that's all of it. One commentator suggested this, that he was so drunk that he was asking her to appear with just the crown on and nothing else. Well, she obviously had some standards. She had some conviction. She was not going to be subjected. Whatever this lack of protocol or respect against her, she said no. Even though she was the queen, she said no to the king. And that day, to refuse to appear before the king, we just didn't do that. That would be humiliating to the king. And here he is showing off to everybody his power, his reign, his accomplishments. And then his very queen is defiant. So full of pride and a safe face, of course with a lot of advice, he chooses to banish Vashti from the kingdom. So the king has lost his queen. About four years pass, and Xerxes realizes the foolishness of his actions. If you study the history of this, this is when maybe some things trying to conquer Greece didn't go so well. Maybe this, the, his, his harem was no longer a substitute for a wife. Anyway, he wants a queen. But never fear, again, his advisors are up for advice. They say, hey, let's have a beauty pageant. Let's get you another queen. Go throughout the, all the kingdom. Now, that sounds like a plan a bunch of men would come up with, doesn't it? And to be fair, 
The Bible doesn't say, but they probably volunteered to be the judges. And actually, to be fair, the Bible really doesn't say it's a beauty pageant or a beauty contest. We think of it that way. And the reason we think of it that way, because the Bible does say that, that the king noticed that Esther was lovely in form and features. In fact, that she was chosen because he was attracted to her. So even if it wasn't a beauty contest, that definitely was a factor in this. In fact, look in chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, where her father and mother had died. So Mordecai is a good man, takes in his younger cousin, and as a young lady, she's one of the ones that's chosen to go before the king, to possibly be chosen as, as queen. But notice this, if you read through the story, this to me was amazing. Before she could appear before the king, she had to undergo some beauty treatments. And not just any beauty treatments, 12 months of beauty treatments. Now, that's one extreme makeover. Gentlemen, the next time your wife takes a long time to get ready... You just remember Esther. A whole year. Look in verse 10. This is important. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. That's key. That's a key detail here. You see, when the time was right, she appears before the king. Esther is chosen. Of all the beautiful young maidens from throughout his kingdom, Esther is the one that is chosen. They get married and it's declared a national holiday. And again, the king has no idea that she's a Jew. Nobody knows this. Now, soon after this, the Bible shares what appears to be this side story that has nothing to do with the story. It involves Mordecai's cousin. He's sitting at the gate. He overhears this plot to assassinate the king. So he shares that information with his cousin. She tells the folks in charge. They check it out, sure enough. And they put to death the two would-be assailants. And it's noted, the Bible says, they write down the name of Mordecai in the king's records, the, the annals, the record books. So that's the side story. Now, sometime after this, Xerxes decides he needs more advice, I guess. He needs a helper, a prime minister. And so he selects Haman. And this is the one that we really get to know, the joker. He's the prime minister. He's the main advisor to the king. Now, what we know is true in life is we see here in Haman that when someone gets elevated to a high position, you really see their character come out. And that's what we see. Haman is addicted to power. We call him the joker because he ridicules the Jewish people. And this really comes to light because, well, Haman is in love with himself. So much so, if you read through the story, you know, he, he has the king to make the rule that everybody has to bow down to him. I mean, this is one guy who's full of himself. And we know as the story goes on, everybody does it except for Mordecai. And this is where the story gets personal. Mordecai would not kneel down or worship. Look in Esther 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Now, it's one thing for Mordecai to not do this. So he was devoted to God and to kneel to some other person, especially in this life, he just would not do it. But here's another reason. A little a backstory, if you will. Haman is a descendant of Agag. Agag and the Amalekites are the hated enemies of the Jews. They hated each other. And so this was already going on. You say the name and they knew where they were from. 
So Mordecai's not bowing down to Haman, and this hacks Haman off. He gets so infuriated over, he's going to put not just Mordecai to death, but every one of the Jews. Look in chapter 3, verse 6. And having learned that of Mordecai, who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. One author I was reading says, Haman was a Hitler trying to, to kill all the Jews in the land. A bona fide racist. And this is his scheme. He goes to the king. I've got a plan. There's this group of people in your kingdom. Their culture is different. They're not like us. They don't obey you as they should. And they need to be put away with. I'll even put some money in the coffers if you'll allow this to happen. The king says keep your money, but do with them as you will. So not only did he give permission, but there's a detail in here that's key. He gets the king to place his signet ring upon it. Meaning now it's law that cannot be revoked. And they set a date. Almost an extermination date, if you will. On this date, all the Jews in the kingdom would be annihilated. Everybody would know. On this date, you take all the Jews out. Now this is no small problem. You think about it. Some of the Jews had gone back home. These had not yet, for whatever reason. I think we'll get into that more next week. But this is nothing but a death sentence. They had to be thinking, God has abandoned us. And we've been in exile, we've been trying to make it, we're trying to hang on to our faith, and now, here's this death sentence. It's a rule, it's a law. But God has not abandoned them. In fact, He's watching over them. He may be out of sight, but they are never out of His sight. And he has taken care, and he's going to see this come through in every detail of the story. I think of Hebrews 13.5, quoting our God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, that's the upper story. We've talked about that in our study. You know, the upper story and the lower story. The upper story is the big picture, what God is doing. The lower story is all the Jews feeling right now, we're about to die. And we've got the date. We know that it's coming. But in this lower story, the situation though, for Esther, for Mordecai, for all the Jews, the end is near. It's incredibly bleak. Look there in chapter 3, verse 13 and following. This shows you the hatred that Haman had. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods... A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. And again, I want you to get the timing here of all this. Mordecai hears about this before Esther does. You know, Esther's holed up. She's in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on. All the other Jews know. They've heard the, the reading of the king's command. And so he realizes Esther, his cousin, is in a position to save her people. So Mordecai begs Esther through letter to go to the king to plead for their behalf. And Esther sends back the message, Mordecai, you don't understand. There's a problem here. I'm not been seen by the king in, in 30 days. It's been a month since my own husband has asked to see me. 
in case you've forgotten, remember what happened to the last queen who refused the king and, and, and didn't go according to, to protocol? If he doesn't extend that royal scepter to me, signifying that, that he's good with me to, to come and talk to him, she could die. That's what happened to the last queen, remember? And I love how Mordecai responds. Look through your Bibles, Esther 4, verse 13 and following. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Mordecai is telling his young cousin, this is not about you being a beauty queen. This is not about you being married to the king. God has orchestrated all of this for you to choose to do the right thing and save your people. Now's the time, Esther. We need you. This is the moment. It's a moment of truth. What are you going to do? And we've all been there, haven't we? Can we read through this story and not relate a little bit? Maybe we've not been the queen. I don't mean that. But in, in a hard situation, caught in the middle, and it's the moment of truth. Your boss asks you to do something unethical to maybe help smooth over a situation. What are you going to do? Your friend at work listens to your marital problems. Such a good friend. And then starts to flirt with you. Or maybe your friends mock your morality and scoff your view of biblical marriage. How do you respond? Or maybe something as simple as your alarm goes off. You don't spend some time with God. And that bed's so cozy and comfortable. You just want a few more minutes. In those moments of truth, what are you going to do? Are you going to take a stand? Are you going to do the right thing? Esther gets an amazing lesson that all of us need. And I hope you get this as you read through the story. It's not about me. Esther needed to know that. This wasn't about, well, she was this chosen one, you know. After all, I mean, she was the orphan. I mean, her mother and father had died, so she deserved some happiness. That's not what this story is about at all. That's what our world says. What Esther learns is, her being chosen as queen has nothing to do with her beauty. It's not about position. It's about her being at the right place at the right time. To use her influence that God has given her to intercede for His people. It's not about her accumulating in a wardrobe or getting precious jewels. It's not about being the most desirable woman in all the kingdom. Esther, you're in this position at this moment for God to work through you. That's the upper story meeting the lower story. You've been brought here to be a part of God's plan to sustain His people. See, think of the timing here. Four or five hundred years, Jesus is coming. We're almost there. We've got to keep the line. It's not time. It won't happen. In fact, Mordecai says, if you won't do it, God's going to do it some other way, but you can do it. So Esther is faced with a decision. She knows she can't do this in the flesh. And I love this detail of the story. This is going to take God's doing. So she calls on God. Look at Esther 4, verse 16. She sends back the message to her cousin Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. 
When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's a lot of courage. And think about this, this young lady here. This isn't a, I might lose my friendship. Or, or I might lose my job. This is life or death for her. If I perish, I perish. And she realized God has placed her here to intercede for her people. See, not only is Esther beautiful on the outside, the Bible tells us that. But we also learn in this moment of truth, she is courageous on the inside. It is a package deal with this young lady. And praying and fasting went hand in hand for the Jewish people. When you fast and you skip a meal, you're communicating that God will be your nourishment. Your focus will be on Him. He will be your sustenance. The whole purpose of fasting, of giving something up, is so that your focus is on God. And it's a moment of truth. I put on your outline there, not for you necessarily to fill in the blank, for you to think about. What's the first thing that you do when you face intense pressure? How would you answer that? Or maybe better yet, maybe ask somebody close to you the true answer for that. Usually we don't fast. I don't fast. That's not my first knee-jerk reaction. Some people get angry or agitated. You notice that? You can tell they're under pressure because they're snippy, snappy, maybe bite your head off, they act angry. Some maybe talk to a close buddy, maybe talk it out. Some put it on Facebook, social media. It's all out there. Some do just the opposite. They withdraw. Don't tell anybody. Stop going to things. Stop talking to people. Some turn to the bottle or a pill. Some get lost in work, put in long hours, kind of a escape to busy your mind. Some people spend money. What do you do when you're in that moment of intense pressure? Listen to 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. See, so many lessons we can learn in this, but we'd be so wise when we face these intense situations to fast, to pray. Do like Esther. We're going to call on God. That's what's happening here. So after all this time of the Jews, along with Esther's servants fasting and praying these three days, Esther takes this step of courage and faith. She goes uninvited to the king, knowing that if he doesn't motion with his scepter, give her that wink of approval, that nod that it's okay, She's as good as dead. There she stands in the corridor in front of the king. This is their moment. Their eyes meet. And the king smiles. He extends his royal scepter. And what Esther has to know in her heart is God is working. And every little, every big detail of this. Look in verse 3, Esther 5, 3. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be given to you. And Esther makes a very simple request to start with. Now, the first time you read this story, you're probably thinking, what is she thinking? And obviously, for three days, she's been thinking. What am I going to say? What am I going to ask for? I'd love to have a banquet with you and Haman, just the three of us tonight. What a request. And what's happening here? But you get ready because the next 36 hours, the next 36 hours are just full of twists and turns of what happens. What the banquet, I'm not sure what's going on. Maybe the timing wasn't right. Maybe Esther had a moment of cold feet. Maybe she was perfectly orchestrating the situation, knowing exactly what she was choosing to do. We don't really know. 
But she asked for her petition again. Let's have dinner another night. Just the three of us. Now, put that on pause and go back to all that we said about Haman. Remember Haman? Prime minister, second in command, so full of himself, wants everybody to bow. And here's Haman having dinner at the queen's request with just the queen and the king. Ego is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, so much so, the Bible says he, he, he goes home and, and tells his, his wife and his friends, I, I'm going to dinner, you know, with, with the king and queen, just the three of us. I mean, he's just so full of himself, he can't even hold it in. But then there's Mordecai, who won't bow. He can't even enjoy that awesome moment because of his hatred of Mordecai. That defiance is eating him alive. It's robbing him of joy. And so, he cannot wait for that extermination day to come. So that was in the future. It was set, but it was in the future. It hadn't happened yet. So he decides to put him to death now. Tells his servants there to build a 75-foot gallows to hang Mordecai on. He's going to go and ask the king permission to make it happen. And again, here's where God is working through insomnia. Again, it's another one of those details we love about the story. The king can't sleep. So what does he do? He asks one of his attendants to, to get the king's records, the minutes, the, what the Bible calls the annals. Well, what's he doing there? No, we don't really know. I can't say for sure. But my guess is minutes are like a combination. The king's minutes or annals. Reading those is a combination of a sleeping pill and a sermon. You put them together and you'll be out. You know? I don't know that. But in the process of reading, they come to that side story, remember earlier? Like what does it have to do with anything? About Mordecai overhearing the plot to assassinate the king? Well, that'll wake you up. Somebody want to put you to death? Well, tell me the details. What happened? What happened to this guy, Mordecai? What was ever done for him? Nothing was ever done for him. We use the phrase, it just so happened. You ever use that phrase? Well, it just so happened. Well, it just so happened. I'm about decided to just take that phrase out of my vocabulary. And the same with luck. You know, the more I read Scripture, this is not just so happening. This is God working. Get the picture here of the timing. Haman was at that moment coming in to ask the king to put Mordecai to death. The king is hearing the records of how Mordecai saved his life. I mean, you see the opposites here. I mean, the, the timing is just amazing. Look there in verse 6. His own pride. Haman puts the noose around his neck. Verse 6, the king asks Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? You know, the writer of this book fills in the blanks. We don't have to guess, but we could have guessed. Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, and can't you imagine him just looking up the sky, just thinking, what would be good? Let me give this kind of dream. For the man the king delights to honor, the Bible says, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden. We'll let the royal crest placed on its head. We'll let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let, the robe, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And he's just so caught up in the moment Verse 10, go at once the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested. 
For Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you've recommended. Wouldn't you love to be a father-in-law at that moment? I mean, the, <laughs> the coffin, the what? Did I hear that right? I mean, that moment is just so perfect. And how humiliating. The very thing he's dreaming of for himself, who more than me, he's having to do for his, his enemy. Enemy number one. I wrote this down in my notes. The next time I'm having a bad day, I need to go back and read this. Haman's having a bad day. I mean, nothing's going well. Runs home, tells his wife and friends, you would not believe what happened to me today. I mean, this is the worst of the worst. Can't even finish telling the story until the servants have come. Remember, he's been invited to that second banquet. Now it's time. And at this banquet, the king, the queen, and Haman, just the three of them, everything is set. So the king asks Esther, what's your request? What do you want? Look there in your Bibles, Esther 7, verse 3 through 7. This is where this young lady becomes the queen we love. Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. She's so respectful. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Remember, Haman didn't know she was a Jew. He had no idea. The king got up in a rage, verse 7, and left his wine. I'm going to stop right there. Look at that line. Isn't that hilarious? Left his wine. Obviously, that was a big detail for the writer. Not was he just mad at what's going on. He left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now, you get the picture here of what's going on here. The king maybe is just so angry, so infuriated, didn't see it coming. I mean, second in command, trying to put to death his own wife and all of her people. Of course, a little bit of a shock to him as well. He's not aware that she's a Jew also. So he goes out maybe to cool off a bit or just let it all soak in, just can't sit there. We don't know the specifics of the scene. But at that moment, Haman realizes the king's out. He's angry. He rushes to the queen and just throws himself at her. And again, we don't know the specifics here. One author joked that Haman goes to the queen and trips over probably a Persian rug. Or, or maybe as she's laying on what we read about this, it's a, it's a couch. Maybe he's just falling over, just prostrate, just, you know, just in submission, just just begging for mercy with his very posture. And at this, the king comes in. I cannot believe it. Look in chapter 7, verse 8. Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Know what happens next. The Bible says they cover over Haman's face. When you get a little of the history that's going on here, that was just a polite way of saying, dude, you're dead. They would just cover his face. Your time is up. It's just a matter of when 
in hell. And this is another one of those, it just so happened, that is not really a just so happened. I, again, I wish I could have been there as a fly on the wall. One of the king's attendants kind of speaks up. Your Majesty, I was on my way to work today, and I walked by Haman's house, and I noticed that he was building these 75-foot gallows to, to hang Mordecai on, you know, the one that saved your life, the one that you honored earlier today. Yeah, those gallows are just sitting there, unused. Pity. That's all the king had to hear. Hang him on it. Can you say poetic justice? What a turn of events. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Unless you know the author of the story. Let me close. Three observations, two minutes. Observation number one, look for opportunities. Esther did this. Look for opportunities. Mordecai did this. Look for opportunities. Be aware of who God puts in your path, what God puts in your path. See, if you're in a position, it's not because you worked hard, or maybe you did work hard. It's not because you look good, or maybe you do look good. But it has nothing to do with it if you're one of God's people. You look for opportunities to serve Him, to do what's right. You're serving a higher power. It's not about you. It's about Him. Number two, invite God into the process. That's what she did. Esther chose to do that through fasting. It doesn't say prayer, but they just go hand in hand, and you know they were praying. She knows that she doesn't control the events. God has to intervene to make this happen. So invite Him into it. And then third, have the courage to speak up at the right time, with the right words, say the right thing. Matthew 10, 32, whoever acknowledges me before others, Jesus says, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Have the courage to take a stand even when there's some consequences that you may not be able to control. God specializes in taking what the world doesn't expect and bringing glory to Himself. This queen who's a Jew, who's an orphan, not just saves today, she saves her people. You know how the story ends? And to me, this is one of those, another reason we love the story. Haman is put to death. Esther remains queen. And the king Xerxes, you know what he does? He makes Mordecai the Jew the prime minister of the land. We love this story. See, in the lower story, all this happens because an ace who challenged a queen to confront a king. And in the upper story, the Jewish nation is saved. And in the lower story, their lives are spared. Because of not King Xerxes, but the King of Kings who is working. So the next time you think the deck is stacked against your hand, you let God make the play. Esther 8, verse 16, I put it in the bottom of your study guide. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness, joy, gladness, and honor. Let's pray. God in heaven, when it seems dark, when you seem invisible, you are still invincible. And when you are silent, we know you are in control. God, even though we are ordinary people, you still choose to unfold your will and your work through us. Open our eyes. Help us to depend on you and give us courage. We thank you, Lord. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. We close by offering the invitation.
for you to name the name of Jesus, to have the courage to say what you believe. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we have water ready so that you can be baptized, have your sins washed away, be added to His kingdom. Let your purpose forevermore be different because you're not living for this life. You're living for the one to come. Or if we can just pray for you, maybe to be like Esther, maybe to be like Mordecai, to believe, to have faith, to have courage. Once you come, we stand and sing to encourage you.